Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Joining me as always is my producer, Kevin Black. Steven is not joining us on this episode of the podcast. However, this man that is joining me needs zero introductions. He's been on this pod multiple times. I've been on his pod multiple times. The people love when we get together for content. And it's only fitting that we were going to have this man back on before the 2022 NBA draft. I'm sure I will be on his podcast before the 2022 draft as well. We always like coming together for discussion points around quote unquote, our guys or our thoughts or our predictions. And so given that I'm doing an their guys or his guys or her guys podcast series with rotating guests, come on, chucking darts had to join me at some point. Chuck, how you doing boss? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on. That was very, very nice. Yeah, last, when we did this for the 2021 draft on my feed, uh, let's see, Jared Butler was one of yours. Absolutely. Isaiah, Todd, Isaiah Todd was one of yours. Trey Murphy, Josh Gideon, Garuba were mine. Who was your third that you were stumping for? Oh, God, I can't, I couldn't even remember who my third <laughs> was, but Todd... Todd sounds about right. I'm, I'm, listen, I'm still in on that train. Jared Butler, you know, I'm still going to be in on that train. But the, listen, your Trey, your Trey Murphy train. I mean, you, you got me agreeing with you to an extent. I did not end up having him quite as high as you did on your board. However, I saw, <laughs> I saw a lot of the value that you were pining after. And by the way, oh, look who's playing big minutes for the Pelicans in the playoffs. Maybe not getting up as many shots as you'd like him to, but. He's playing very well. The, 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 the dart friendly New Orleans Pelicans, as you like to say on social media. As the darty Pels, yep. Before no. we get into like the guys that we're going to talk about tonight, any any broad stroke playoff thoughts that, that you need to get off your chest? Ooh, um broad strokes. Uh well, very, if, I mean, if you want to get into the darty pels, I mean they can be minor strokes, but any, no, no, anything no, no, no. you want to get off your chest. It's it's not that. It's more that um, it's really sort of, I don't want to say messing up, but it is uh, constantly recontextualizing the my draft work, the playoffs, because they're always important. And anyone in the draft community, we always like to say, you know, we have our priors, we've done the homework, we've watched all the film by the time, you know, the games, the college season's over, March Madness is over. You want to say like, oh, the work's 95% done. I am with all that. I respect everyone's grind. But when I, you know, when I watch the playoffs, I feel like my work has gone from 95% over to like 40% over. You (laughs) just have to go back and watch everything in, in the light of what is working in the playoffs. And I think one thing in the playoffs that I am paying attention to is not like a, it's not reinventing the wheel or anything, but uh, the sort of promise that has been out there in the NBA and in NBA draft circles for years about, um, about how everything is wings and you got to find wings and wings are the future. And that's where the league is going. I think it's finally starting to like, it's finally starting to be not just a necessity to have really good wings, but even if you have star guards, it's still you, that might mean that you're a first round team. 
if you have if your offense revolves around a star guard who can't hold up on defense then you might be in trouble if you have a star big who can't switch onto the perimeter then you might be in trouble um admittedly this theory would be better if the raptors weren't down three two to the I, I, I was guess are you are you talking about my sixers truck I not, not 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 specifically i'm talking about how the the celtics to me are clearly the the best team in a crowded eastern yep. conference i think and i think it goes to that um i think uh you know, the Miami Heat are probably the other best contender in the East for much the same reason. They were able to erase Trey Young a lot easier than I thought they'd be able to um, with their defense. And out West, uh, the West is a bit more varied in the teams that succeed. But like even the Dallas Mavericks, I did an episode on them with uh, Lauren Gunn last week because I think they're very underrated and they are not, they don't strike you or strike me as the most switchable team ever, but their best lineups are, you know, Luca's running point, And as long as they can hide Brunson well Brunson, enough yeah. and Brunson competes on defense, but he doesn't have wing size. Everyone else is kind of like sized. And once you, once you have that lineup where everyone is more or less, you know, six, six or taller and, you don't need to have the best defenders in the world. You just need to have guys who know their responsibilities and can execute a scheme. You just want to avoid being hunted. And like I said, not reinventing the wheel, but it makes it smooths out draft eval a lot. Cause we're not going to talk about, we're going to talk about one guard today, but he's a big guard. And yeah. uh, these other guards in the draft and I, I feel bad, but like Jaden Hardy and Ty Ty and Turquavion and Kennedy Chandler, all of them have things to recommend. Like I, I do see value in their games, but I just, I watch the playoffs and I just wonder, well, where, where do they fit in? Where do these, where can these guys fit in? How good an offensive player do they really have to be to make sure that they're closing games? If you're John Morant, great. Yes, you can close games in the playoffs, no problem. But outside of that, you know, it's it's very hard. So that that's more what I'm looking at, how this wing revolution, and this is a, a very wingy draft. There's yeah. only more of these guys coming into the league. How the wing revolution is finally turning over a little bit. That's that's it, what I've noticed. You know it's a deep wing draft when one of one of my fa- like I can just I can think of some names off the top of my head, but like one of my favorite wings in this draft, for example, is Marjan Beauchamp. He's probably going to go in like the twenties. Some yeah. mocks have even had him in like the early thirties. Like that's that's how many spots deep we might be talking in terms of wings. And 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 I agree with you. Um, I, I think really this playoffs has hit home now more than ever. You need guys who can make shots when the ball is swung around to them that they can do something when the ball comes around to them and they, they can't be complete zeros on the defensive end. And some of those guards that you just listed off Chuck, that would be their issue. They provide offensive value, but when you start breaking things down defensively, they need certain pieces around them to be able to make sure that they stay on the floor to do the things that they're capable of doing. Like Terquavion would be a comparison to like the Jalen Brunson in a sense, like you have to play Terquavion next to a certain group of guys hardy is similar although he does have the size to him but he's not he's potentially not as dynamic offensively in in certain aspects like you'd like him to project him in like the top 10 some might disagree with us on that but i 
I have Jane Hardy like on my best days and like the back end of a lottery to like a mid first round grade. Um, so there, there are just much more intriguing wing bets slash forward bets that I think I'd rather make than some of those guys at this point. And we're going to talk about a few of them tonight. And let's just start with the player who, man, his stock could not be any hotter on draft Twitter right now. I feel like every third post I scroll through on Twitter has an Usman Jang um, highlight reel or video clip. And it's for good reason. I, I've waited to go back and do my little quote unquote second half of the year dive on Jang because I didn't want all of this hoopla and this hype to necessarily persuade me into coming around higher on him than maybe I, I wanted to before I watched the tape, because as, as Tyler Rucker pointed out, one of our group chats today, like I don't forget the first half of the year for Jang, right? Like I'm, I'm not going mm -hmm. to forget some of the stuff that I watched in the first half of the year, but I went back last night in, in part in preparation for this podcast. Cause you want to talk about him, Chuck, but also because I, I just, I just needed to do the dive anyways. And I see it. I see exactly what everybody else is seeing. I have some concerns that I'm assuming we'll get into because you're a very deep evaluator, Chuck. Even when you say you, you, you haven't quite paid attention yet to the, the draft in some respects, as you usually like to. You, when, when you do an evaluation on somebody, you are incredibly detailed and you're very deep. So I have a feeling we're going to talk about all the points with Jank. But why don't you just start by giving me your case for him and why you wanted to talk about him as as one of quote unquote your guys. Because in a draft of wings, he still is scarce. That's yep. the, this, it's the simplest way I can put it. You, you know, at the NBA draft is, this is something I wrote when I did my little um, final board write up last year. So the NBA draft at a certain level is an it's an exercise in scarcity. Can you get the rarest kinds of talents that contribute in the most important ways? And dialogue about the draft, most of the dialogue about the draft, and I don't want to completely straw man here. Um, it focuses on, understandably so, focuses on like archetypes, players that remind you of other players that have succeeded. And sometimes that archetype work is uh, very sophisticated and there's tons of you know pieces that we can shout out to that effect. Other times archetype work is a little lazier and it's like, is this guy a three and D wing? You know, stuff like that. Yep. Stuff that, it, that lacks a little bit of new, nuance. Um, but if you look last year at that historic draft that you know, we were all pumping up for months before uh before it actually happened the deepest the, guys, the deepest draft in history as you coined it which I, I i would agree with you but by the way yeah. but thank you thank you but yeah like when you look at that draft the guys who showed out the most and the people are the most bullish on it's not you know, when you think about it it makes complete sense but it's the guys who have the most skill at the most size with the most athleticism which again like not, not reinventing the wheel nope. but with draft evaluation i i like restating the obvious i maybe i'm unique in that but i just like being like i know x 
And I know that Cade Cunningham and Evan Mobley and Scotty Barnes and Franz Wagner and Josh Giddy and Jalen Green all succeed to a degree because they're taller than other people at their position and they have guard skills, which you don't see at their size, at least not to the extremes that they have. Yep. And when you look at this draft and you look at Usmane, you know, the, the guy who sticks out the most at the top of the draft for having these kinds of skills where you can really see him operating lots of pick and roll and um, really dictating offense for large stretches of games for a good team, that, that guy is Paolo. He's, he's sort of the one guy who sticks out as maybe being able to do that in that capacity. And Usmana, when I, when I watched him, uh, for the breakers this year, he is, by the way, almost not quite, but almost a year younger than, than Paolo, you know, playing in a pro league. To me, he has, uh, he has more, I get, this is sort of a draft cliche, but he has more fluidity with the ball than Paolo. Paolo is more of a power player yep. who is a bit more deliberate. I think Usmane, uh, though Paolo's a very good passer, Usmane's movements are just a little quicker. They, you know, he is a bit more slithery and he can get to his spots more quickly than Paolo can. And he's 6'10". Now he's not 250 pounds, but I think that his release is quicker. I like his shot a little bit more than I like Paolo's in a vacuum. And though I have Paolo higher on my board, you know, there are people who are intrigued by Usmane who are like, yeah, i I, I see the skills. I'm, I'm a little tantalized. I get it. Late first round pick. Well, I'm here to tell you that you it's <laughs> he's a 6'10 guard who can get his own shot off the dribble and get to the rim and has done it, albeit in the second half of the season, pretty frequently in a pro league. There are not 25 guys like that in the draft. There aren't five. There aren't three. So that's where I start is he does, and it doesn't mean he's going to be a great NBA player, but it means sure. that if you're, if you have a pick in the lotto, you have to try to get guys like these because the old adage of small market teams need to take a swing on stars. That's now to me, every team, I don't know what team it is out there besides the Lakers with LeBron and the Nets <laughs> with Kyrie and Kevin Durant who can really convince themselves to rely on free agency to land nuclear talents. Is, isn't not, it a beautiful thing when the league is so rich with talent that you can no longer just slap two stars on a team, try and find player X, Y, Z to fill out the roster. And you think you can win a championship with that team. Isn't it a beautiful thing, Chuck? I think it is. It, it's great. I mean, and it, it, it stresses the importance of fit and that, you know, goes back to what we were talking about at the top about, you know, what is the playoff show? You know, your, your team has to fit together. Your talent has to complement one another. And the best way to do that is to find versatile players who can do an assortment of things on the floor. And though Usmane has his warts and I'm not standing here saying, or sitting here, saying that he's a that he's like a no doubt top five pick because I don't I don't think he is um what what the production he has shown and the things that he can do you can see a version of it right at home on you know the futuristic Toronto Raptors I mean you can see how it would work 
So that's that's where I I start with him is that is just the rarity of what he's got. So my reservations with Jang, I think really all come back to the same point is that he's 6'10, but this kid does not have the bulk on him to do a number of things on the floor. I think in a way it, it scares him away from going after the basket and looking to draw contact a little more to get to the free throw line, which he's also not the best of free throw shooters, but he really doesn't get there enough. Like he shot 1.3 free throw attempts per game. So that that's, Mm -hmm. that's a way that if some of that comes around, that's an easy way for him to add to his scoring average. Talk about that all the time with good players. And then defensively, I don't think he's bad at defense. I think he's actually sneakily good in some respects, but I think, where where he could stand to get better isn't necessarily by um, development and feel on the ball or off the ball. It's with his body. If he could just absorb contact better and not let a lot of different matchups blow through him, I think he'd be a better defensive player. Like right now, if he were to go in the NBA, I think he's pretty locked into defending opposing twos. If, if you're telling me that Jang can add safely like 15 to 20 pounds of bulk on his body and get stronger over the next few years. Then I think some of the defensive concerns that I have go away. I think some of the finishing concerns slash aggressiveness to get to the line goes away and or improves. And now when you start to put those things together, along with the pick and roll creativity that you talked about, the shooting versatility that you talked about he's not just a spot-up shooter at his best he can take one or two dribbles pull up I even was watching some film last night he has really nice touch on a floater when Mm -hmm. he can get to it and the last thing is if he does get more comfortable getting downhill going to the basket doing all of that I I think it could naturally improve his shot selection as well he stops settling for some of those fadeaway jumpers that you'll see him take and he'll he'll airball I think it eliminates a lot of that as well so they're like three different areas for improvement, but they all come back to something that I think is naturally going to happen. Like I look at his frame. I don't see any reason why he can't safely add the weight that I'm looking for. I understand anytime you're dealing with like a 6'10 or, or bigger guy, you need to be very careful with how you go about that process because that's where injuries can come into play if you add mm-hmm. on that much weight too quickly. But if we're talking about over the course of a few years, and with the skill base that you're already mentioning, like if that's the outcome that I can get, I said this today, I think he might be a no brainer top 10 pick. And I think that's kind of where you're sort of going with your line of thinking. It is. And I don't, uh, I certainly understand that concern. I, let me ask you, did you have similar concerns about either Giddy or Mobley? Particularly Giddy, since he played in the same league. I that's that's a great question. I I did to an extent, but there are also some things with Giddy's shot as well as his touch that I wasn't a fan of coming in, which I mm-hmm. think those concerns bore themselves out over the course of his rookie year. But I was not concerned physically with Mobley because I wasn't trying to project him as a center. Um, I was, I was always going to project him as more of like a power forward and giddy 
I would project him more as like a, a three, four when his body fills out like a four, three, not necessarily like a two, which is how he's actually played in Oklahoma city. So I was kind of like projecting not to where he's at right now. I think my projection was actually a little off um, because of how good he is on the ball. Um, Jang, I think if you're projecting him as like a two, three versus trying to like scale him up in certain matchups, I think, you become less concerned, but my concerns with the body, I think if those could be wiped away, I think that's, that's his quickest route in my opinion to becoming like a potential star is to get the body stuff figured out so that he can absorb that context. They can get that hills. They can get to the free throw line. Um, that that's in terms of like his star development. I don't, I don't think, I don't think the 15 to 20 pounds that I'm looking for is important in the context of, I think he needs it to just be a good NBA player. Yeah. And I think where you project him, you know, that we, going back to versatility, his, his creativity, his ball handling um, and his shot, you can project him. Like I would project him as a center. I wouldn't project him as a four, but I, I could see him occupying anything one through three, in a given lineup. Now that's not to say that I think that he's going to be again, like the primary point guard, the way that, yep. you know, Luka Doncic is, he's not a heliocentric guy, but in a pinch in certain matchups, if he has good wing defenders around him, I wouldn't rule that out. And that's just sort of the luxury that having ball skills and size affords you is that you, you can fit in a number of different ways. Um, as far as, my personal opinion about his his bulk and his frame. Look, I am not a biomechanics guy. I'm not a. I'm, I don't have that background, so I don't. Want ne- to neither am I, which is why I tried to use the word safely, and I didn't want to get too far into it because I <laughs> I'm not an expert in that stuff either. But yeah, and so I'm not going to say one way or the other whether I think he will safely add bulk. I'll just say that I think it's rarer than it might seem for a skinny kid with this kind of size to say, to stay skinny and get taken advantage of all the time at the NBA level. That's, that's more how I come about it is like who has washed out because of their skinniness if they have the ball skills, right. they have the requisite feel and everything else. And again, and I'm so, not, I'm not saying that he needs those, he needs that to be a good NBA player. I just, yeah. I'm more saying it as a quicker path to quote unquote stardom for him could be in, in, in his physical development, because I think that unlocks more on the court. Yeah. I, and that's certainly true. I 100% agree with that. And I, it's the sort of thing where, I am willing to, even in my ignorance, trend optimistically and say, I think that's going to be fine. Um, It's sort of until proven otherwise, I think he's an 18-year-old kid, again, playing in a very physical league. Some of the same criticisms were there for Giddy. And Giddy is, you know, he, he had his problems his rookie year, particularly from his shot, but I don't think he was lacking in aggressiveness. I don't think he ran into a rookie wall physically. I don't, I don't think there was any of that. So uh, I the think the best that parts of Giddy were able to translate in the NBA yes. immediately in his rookie season. But there is a, in your 
in what you've laid out as a concern for him, there is something that also your colleague uh, Maxwell hit on in a very good article about Usmane, which is about how physically he plays. I and mean, it's one thing, and it's the whole Chet Holmgren thing that he's rail thin, but he plays really hard, embraces physicality, seeks it yep. out. Um, and I think that Usmane, in the same way you said that you don't think he's necessarily a bad defender, I don't. I've seen worse in terms of guys avoid contact than him on both sides of the ball. I've seen people more allergic to it, but there's no question that he prefers to avoid rather than finish through contact. And I think that that is, it's something that can be acquired in the NBA as you get older. It certainly can. Um, But you always want to know, particularly in, in watching the playoffs where, you know, you see where this intensity picks up. You want guys where that's not a calculation that they need to make, where they know that they're going to get hit and they're going to get hit hard and they keep going. And it's sort of an old head kind of intangible coach speak way of doing it, but that doesn't make it any less correct. Like you, you need to be comfortable with the physicality of the game. Now, again, I'm willing to give Usmane the benefit of the doubt because it is not easy. It really is not easy to play in that league physically in Australia. So I I don't think it is anything really out of the ordinary. I think that, you know, LaMelo ball didn't like contact when he was there either. And and he still has his own issues with contact. Now he had a more special skill set, but as we've been saying, Usmane has some special to him and in one of the things I like most about him is that this is even unlike LaMelo and Giddy is that though he has all these ball skills, I don't think he needs the ball no matter where he goes. I don't think taking him means you are building around him because when oh, he I is, agree with that a hundred percent. Yeah. When he's stationed off the ball for this team and his team is not good and his team sort of has not played at home all year and has a lot of young players you know, he will get some possessions where he brings the ball up and runs pick and roll. There will be other possessions where he plays off of Peyton Siva of Louisville fame. And he's just sort of spotted up in the corner and he's just waiting to catch and shoot. And when he gets those opportunities and it's either catch and shoot or attack a closeout or whatever, I think his decision-making is good. I think his shot is good. I think it's, you know, nice and quiet and the mechanics are repeatable. And I just, I expect that he'll be able to do that at the next level as well. And that's the sort of thing where I wonder, okay, we agree that none of this stuff is really a barrier to him being a good player. Yeah, it's honestly, it's more nitpicking than anything really, which is, I I think, also part of what I was trying to admit. Like, Usmani has a foundation of a 6'10 shooter with ball skills that is the foundation of the majority of the biggest time stars in in the NBA. It's certainly right now. And like, if you take Franz Wagner, who's a different prospect and a better prospect than Usmane was, but if you look at Franz, he, I think there's every chance that he makes multiple all-star games. I think that's very possible. I think on the team he's on, and I won't get into too much of a magic tangent, there's going to be some tension about how much he's on the ball versus how much he's off because of the investments they've made at guard, which yep. is not necessarily a bad thing. It you know helps his versatility, but it also probably decreases the chance that he has 
some monster leap in his second or third year, because to do that, you need to have the ball in your hands all the time. So it might mean that he's not quite making all-star games at the rate of his peers in the 2021 class, but it still means he's an extremely valuable starter with a lot of upside, like in his early twenties. And that is very, very valuable. And that's sort of how I see the best version of Usmane playing out is that he becomes a clearly positive starter early in his twenties. Cause you can't sort of keep this kind of skill off the court as long as he's shooting very well um, with upside as he grows into his body to be more, you know, we see it and to bring up my pals. You see it with Brandon Ingram, how long it took him. And part of his issue was getting to a point physically where he could take the pounding that goes with being a 20 plus point per game score, you know, and it unlocked everything else for him. That's actually a a great player to use to, to get at my point in terms of his, his upward trajectory being even greater. uh, I I won't say greater, but quicker um, because he put in the time to, to work on his body to get to the point where he is now, which is one of the best scoring threats in the NBA. Yeah. And that that's, that's again, this is, we're talking about like the best case scenario outcomes for him, but so many guys don't have that on their roadmap. Exactly. And Usmani does now I, and I don't know much about his background or his Intel. I, I, that's sort of the last stuff I look at before the draft. Cause I really want to focus on, on the court game, but assuming all that stuff checks out, I, I just, there's so many different opinions about this draft. There are people, I think like you and I, who think it's very deep, like with wing bets, like bets to make that are very worthy bets to use a pick on. There are other people who think that there's like a steep drop after pick seven. And then, you know, you could go from eight to 40 and, and make lots of similar cases. Both might be true to a degree, but if that's where you think that wherever your cutoff is, where, you know, below that you believe that, you know, you could make a bet on just about anyone. Well, if you're just making a bet, I don't know who a better bet is than this <laughs> guy. I don't know who has a higher ceiling. I don't know who's shown more at a pro level. I don't know who is more physically unique. I don't know who can replicate his skill package. I, I just don't know what a better bet would be. And so it's not... um you have to make sure that your environment is going to be right for him and that you have a developmental plan yep. starting with the body, like you said, but also that he's going to come to a team where even if he's in the G league for a little while, that everything is, is on point and on schedule. You don't draft an 18 year old kid and then put it on him to succeed. That's just not yep. how the draft should work. But assuming that you have a plan He's going to he's going to stick out. That's how rookies become rotation players. It's how rotation players become starters. It's oh man, those that's those skills. They really give us an advantage. They are unique relative to other players in the league, and that's what I could see from him. I I don't think this draft is going to be deep in the more traditional sense of the word. What I what I think I mean when I say deep is that I think there's going to be a lot of stakers in like the 10 to 25 range. And I think there's going to be some really smart NBA teams 
that recoup a lot of value outside of like that 25 range. So like 26 through like 45 or 50, I think there's going to be some real gold mined. And mm. that that's, that's what I see for this draft. I think, I think the lottery is going to be, I think the lottery is going to be fine. I think it's going to be a little bit better than people want to think, or some people would sour on. I think the middle of the draft, I see a lot of swings that could be taken that don't pan out, but then I see some smart teams really getting into the thick of it and, and being able to make some really smart bets in like the late first, early second, all the way out to like the middle of the second. And then obviously middle of the second, all the way to the end. I mean, it's a crapshoot, right? Like some guys just don't want to be on a non-guaranteed deal. So they don't get drafted, whatever, whatever the case may be. But I, I, I don't know how you see this draft uh, before we move on to the next guy, Chuck, but that's really how I think it's going to pan out. Just deep well, let's different. just, well, then if you think there's going to be a lot of stinkers, 10 through 25, who are you referring to? What are you, who are you talking about? There, there are a number of guys who oh, I'm fond on, of, Nate. for example, but they, they are bets. Like, all right, for example, I know we didn't plan to talk about this guy, but your friend in mind, Bryce McGowan's, he's a risky pick. If you <laughs> want to admit or mine. not, he's a risky, he's a risky pick because uh-huh. He, he can be one of the rarest types of wings, a true three-level scorer, and I don't use that lightly. I think there's a lot of people who overuse three-level scorer. No, Bryce can actually be a three-level scorer, but right. there are things he has to iron out about his offensive game, about his jump shot in particular, and then defensively, he's not the worst on the ball, but off the ball, he's a hot mess, and I saw it up close and personal to know that it's a little bit of a hot mess. So again, Bryce is somebody I'd like. He has a top 20 grade for me, but a team really has to know how they're going to develop him. Otherwise I could see something like that, for example, not working out in a team's favor. And I do think he's going to be in that 10 to 25 range. I know a lot of people started mocking him in like the back end of the first round, they were starting to come back more around to him. Everything that I've heard and and everything that I've been absorbing is that he's going to be in that late lottery all the way through to like the top 20 range. But like that, that's a risky proposition as an example. I hear you. That's fair. I think that, um, there's a version of Bryce that doesn't quite stick because, you know, the defense is always so terrible, but I would say again, I think Bryce is a little safer than that only because I would, I again, put it to you, you know, Bryce is six, seven, right? Six, yep. six, six, seven. Right He's six, there. six, seven, 179 pounds. And that's probably 179 soaking wet. Okay. Okay. All right. Let's not shame the poor kid. Just a little skinny. A lot of weight. To, 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 in his defense, though, I, one of the reasons why I did want to scout him up close was that I wanted to get a look at his body, and I can. He he has that that broader build up top to the point where he is one of these guys who's going to add weight, and he's going to do it in a manner that won't affect him in any negative way. Like he he is somebody who will definitely fill out. Right. And so, what, again, what I'm saying is. Guys like him at six seven who can create their own shot and get to the rim and draw yep. fouls because yep. he, unlike Uzmani, and this would be an argument for Bryce above him, yes, he is very comfortable seeking contact and getting to the line. It's in fact the pillar of his offensive game is his ability to do that and knock down a ton of free throws. And I just I don't know in the last 10 years, someone who got to the line that well at six, seven off the dribble 
that that didn't pan out because his off-ball defense wasn't very good. I just maybe I'd have to go back and really look at it, but I I to my mind I cannot remember someone who did that that well as a freshman that did not become a good um NBA offensive player. And that's and so I just think to myself, you know, he's going to figure he's going to find a way to do it. He'll find, you know, and I'll just leave it at that cuz we hadn't planned on talking about him but there are plenty of ways to wash out in the nba like there certainly are but the quickest way to do it is to lack ball skills and lack size if you are just okay on the ball but you're not very good on defense and you're six three that's gonna get tough for you but if you're six seven and you can, if you get to the line better than some, you know, point guards do, then you're going to stick around. And I think Bryce is going to stick around. Listen, listen. I called him a risky bet. I do like him. I, I specifically titled my piece on him betting on offense, Bryce yeah. McGowan's. I would I would absolutely bet on him and take a swing on him. You're you're talking to like I feel like I'm the only guy at no ceilings that likes Bryce McGowan's and and I'm still in on Blake Wesley. I'm like I'm like the only guy. So yeah. I'm in I, I'm in I'm in rare company by by myself on, on some of these guys. <laughs> but, I like Blake Wesley. He's more he's a bit more confusing to me than Bryce is. But I don't I love like Blake Wesley. I like I've I've cooled on him to an extent. But like, I don't think he should be outside the first round. Like a lot of people are are projecting him to be, um, unless you're like one of these. Like, I I think there's like high end reporters who are still projecting him like around the lottery, like the mid first range. I think he's he's good somewhere in like twenty to thirty. Um, I just I don't agree. think you can let him leave the first round. That's I agree with you. That is where I have him. So let's shift gears to talk about a guard who is definitely not leaving the first round matter of fact his stock has also roared up i think steven we were talking about big boards on one of the thunder podcasts that that we were just on topic thunder and he said that malachi brandon is like eighth on his big board right now mm-hmm. i i think mm-hmm. brandon's a safe lottery talent for me as well but you wanted to talk about malachi brandon and i've been singing this guy's praises on multiple fronts. I was just on a few Knicks podcasts even where I said Brandon would be a dynamite fit for the New York Knicks if they stayed in that 11 spot. I think Brandon could fit a lot of places. And my argument for Brandon, I don't know if you'll have a similar argument for him or what direction you're going to go in his evaluation, but he's one of these guys, not that not that he's the same one, one-to-one comp as this guy, but I was thinking about this today. You know, in in the same way that like not a lot of people valued just how lethal Desmond Bain could be offensively for Memphis. And it's not that like he's this quote unquote amazing star guy, but like, I don't know how many defenses wanted to come in and game plan around Desmond Bain this early on in his career. But like, if you don't at least account for Desmond Bain, he will torch you and he's done that Mm -hmm. particularly all of this year I see Branham in the same way like Branham might not come in and be like your second or third option on offense but if he's like your fourth guy 
and teams come in and they're building their scheme around you defensively and they're not at least accounting for and respecting Malachi. He is one of these guys that even in an NBA system could burn you for 20 or 30 points on any given night. And I don't know how many, I don't know how I can say that about that many other guards in, in this draft. That's why I think he's really special. He has developing on ball skills, but even if that's not the route that you want to develop him and you see him as more of this off ball spot up type of guy, like even in what he does right now, he can be incredibly lethal. And he was particularly in the second half of the year for Ohio state. And I could see him thriving in the exact same way in the NBA. So that's why I've become really high on him, but why are you really high on him, Chuck? For much the same, much the same reason. And I wanted to talk about Malachi. I'm glad that you're as high on him as you are. And I'm glad that Steven is as high on him as he is. Um, Listen, you, you and I, I think we might think we come into podcasts and we might have a lot of disagreements with one another. I think you and I really do see the game in a lot of the very same respects. I think there are just some points where you and I prioritize different things in the draft, but I think we see the game really the same, which is why I think our conversations are so successful on podcasts. Well, thanks, man. And good for us. Look at us. <laughs> look at us. I, exactly. I, it's that Paul, it's that it's that Paul Randy. <laughs> look at us. I so yeah, I and that, I mean that is the name of the game, is really everyone can come to roughly a consensus over a scouting report, but what you value is where the differences really are. Yep. And with Malachi, I, there is part of me, part of me that wants to put him like sixth in the draft, part of me. And my, my pitch on that is that his, his scoring that really picked up in the second half of the year when Ohio state really leaned into it was so consistent for him. Like he was a high volume. He wasn't a high volume three point shooter, but he was a high volume shooter. They, he was, yeah. he and EJ were the two guys that they ran their stuff through. But as far as pick and roll goes, like Malachi was the guy by the end of the year at Ohio state. And he's an 18 year old kid. He's turning 19, I think next month. And for 18-year-olds, like, this is a big thing with me in the draft. It is one thing to be a freshman. Most prospect freshmen are 19. For an 18-year-old to produce, um, it really augurs well for their NBA success. And Malachi, he his touch was so good everywhere. And everywhere. he started churning out these 20-point games the second half of the year. That I think I said this with Matt Penny when he was on my podcast. If if the if the season had gone another month or another month or two and it was May Madness instead of March Madness, he would have had 10 more 20-point games. It just it seemed like I'm gonna get a step on you, not a nuclear first step, but not bad. And as soon as my shoulders are square by you, I can rise up and hit this jumper like it's nothing. And it's it's Interesting because, again, it's not the type of guard that you expect to see go really high in the draft. You usually like to see either someone with Tyrese Halliburton's vision where they can make they can sling all these passes and manipulate weak side defenders. That's really sort of the 
the draft Twitter, you know, chum in the water that we like to eat up so much is the, the vision that a guard can have in running pick and roll. Yep. You want to see hyper athleticism, you know, what Ja has or what Anthony Edwards has, where they stick out so radically for their, their power and their burst and the pressure they put on the rim. Malachi is different. He does, he is in neither category. All he does is hit shots off the dribble, off the catch, mid range at the rim from three. This is an 18 year old kid who shot 70% at the rim, 70 as a six, five guard in a major conference. It, the Tyrese Maxey to, you know, for your Sixers, who's, you know, the, the toast of the town deservedly so in Philadelphia right now, and who was known as a finisher in college, that that was his signature offensive skill was his finishing package was 65% at the rim. Now it was on a lot higher volume. I think Maxi is a better finishing prospect than Branham was, but it, it speaks to sort of what he was able to do in the second half of the year with this metronomic consistency. He, he was putting up efficiency at the rim that was reminiscent of, you know, solid big men. And he was hitting his threes at over 40%. There's a, I, I don't even see him mentioned that frequently as quite possibly, you know, the best shooter in the draft. I think Jabari deservedly gets that title. I think AJ Griffin gets some shine there, but Malachi, I, I he should be right there. And it's a little different because he pushes his shot out a little more. It's he doesn't create a ton of space. And I don't think those concerns should be dismissed. He doesn't create a ton of space, but he, he gets really good elevation on his jump shot, which makes up for it. And it's, it's just the sort of thing where, again, it's scarcity. There, there are not guys historically who finish this, who shoot as well from every area of the floor as Malachi shoots. And he's six, five. He has a nice long wingspan wingspan. He's well-built. He's not going to be a defensive liability, I don't believe. And he'll be able, because of his shooting, to play off the ball. So as long as he buys in, by the time that kid is 25 and his his good frame is already filled out, we know we don't have to necessarily project a skinny prospect to become like a, a built prospect because he's already on his way, then I don't, it is very hard for me to imagine how he wouldn't have a place on a playoff team, how he wouldn't reliably contribute to a playoff team because if this kid is not the number one option on your team if he's the third or fourth option and he's getting favorable defensive matchups and he's getting the ball with the defense already scrambled then he's like he's just he's gonna make his stuff he's gonna cook he's gonna absolutely live off of that shit and, and and for good reason and as far as the vision and the passing goes which isn't terrible but it's not you know not great not his strength I am firmly in the camp that that stuff becomes easier in the NBA. That is something that being surrounded by talent and having more space, that is one of the areas where it manifests the most, that you can become a very solid passer, if not a great one, then a good one that keeps the machine going. And then the question is just, well, okay, if this kid is going to be a playoff guard and you're going to be able to play him relatively early because the shot is there, um, how much do you value that relative to your board? 
And when I say I would put him roughly sixth, I mean, how many guys do you think have realistic chances of being multi-time all-stars in the draft? If the answer is four, well, then I think Malachi should be getting your attention at number five. Maybe it's not the guy you list there, but he shouldn't be far away. Because if, if once that upside is gone, once you think that, all right, the, the studs who are going to be the first or second best player on a really good team, once those guys are listed on your board, then Malachi has every argument. I'll put it that way. He has every argument to be included right there at that level. I, because I, he doesn't remind me of any, really remind me of any player. Like I could see some Malcolm Brogdon in him a little bit, Yep. but because the way he scores is a little atypical for top picks, I have him more towards the back of the lotto, but I could move him up to, like I said, six, seven, eight. I think he, he absolutely deserves consideration there. I'm in the same boat. And just to sort of put the bow on everything that we wanted to talk about with Malachi and then tying it back to the lens that you and I like to look through when we evaluate these prospects is through the playoffs and what's working in the playoffs. What do you need to win in the playoffs? What are the playoffs about? Half court offensive execution. Right. Chuck, as a, as a young freshman, the kid was in the 88th percentile in overall half-court offense, shot almost 50% in overall half-court offense. That accounts for everything. That's ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous. Pick a percentile that you want to look up for Malachi's offense, and I can tell you it's probably going to be at least average. The majority that you would want to look at, the majority of the play types he was involved in at volume, are very good to excellent. His game might not be the sexiest, as you talked about. He's not one of those incredible, I'm going to jump and finish over you athletes. But that's not always what you're looking for. If you can get a weapon like Malachi Branham in the lottery, I think you're hanging up that phone and you're doing a whole bunch of fist pumps because you are excited about the player that, that you get to bring in. That's that's where I'm at on him. And, and by the way, anybody out there who does want to read a little bit more about not just Malachi Branham's um, scoring versatility, but also some of his passing that he brings, particularly out of the pick and roll game, go read Tyler Metcalf's piece on NoCeilingsNBA.com about Malachi Branham's passing. He did a really good job with that one. I agree it's not one of his top shelf strengths, but the makings of him being a playmaker out of pick and roll are already there. And I do agree with your point, Chuck, that surrounded by better talent, some of that stuff, if it's already there, I, it's only going to get better um, in, in the NBA and in most regards. So he is, he is an offensive dynamo. I'm in the same camp as you about having him like late lottery right now, but I could absolutely move him up my board in the same way that I moved, that I'm probably going to move Usmani on my board as well. Like Usmani was a top 20 guy for me for a, a good portion of the year until like towards the end of that first half run. And I finally just gave up on having him in my top 30 because I just didn't know if he was honestly going to be in the draft. Like I, I really didn't know what was going to happen for him. Now he came back in the seven ha second half. I'm like, all right, I can, I can put this guy and move him back 
to where I originally had him or slightly above that. Malachi's come out of nowhere this year. And I think even as you said, Matt Penny has even said the same thing and same as, same as Sam Vecini has come out of nowhere. And I don't know where I'm, <laughs> I'm going to end with him on my board either. Um, he is such a safe case to make. And yes, if you're in the lottery, you should try to star hunt for as long as possible. But would you rather try and swing for the fences on somebody you are not nearly as confident about? Or would you rather take a guy like Malachi Branham, who you know is going to be a pro for a really long time? And as you said, has the chance to play playoff minutes very early on in his career, meaningful playoff minutes. So I think, I think I'm in the same boat as you. Well, and you, what you mentioned about safe, the safeness of the pick versus star hunting, like eight, this again is not reinventing the wheel, but the advantage in the NBA is already knowing who your stars are. And that's like, duh, you want to have stars are better than not having stars, which of course it is. But one of the main benefits is that it allows you to not trip over yourselves in the draft. And if you know Malachi Branham is going to be good, like this is the the thing with the Pelicans right now, and I'm sorry, I just have them on the brain, so I'm going to reference them as much as I can. By by all means, talk about the dart-friendly Pels, because I've enjoyed watching them in this playoff run, too. The, the, the reason they are able to have so much success with their rookies, apart from the rookies themselves just making good picks, is that they had they knew they had an offensive structure in place, and half, more than half, of their offensive structure hasn't played this year in Zion, but in Zion and Ingram, they go, okay, we have that and we can just fill in around them. It is much harder if, you know, you're, I'm trying to think of a team that, you know, whose offensive structure is a little unsettled, but you know, maybe the magic again is another good example of not really knowing who they're, who they're going to, rely on for offense night in and night out that still means that they are tempted to swing and swing and swing for the fence and that's good and maybe they connect and it's all hunky-dory but it does mean that they tend to pass up on guys who are just going to be very very good NBA players and getting good starters is not easy in the NBA it is costly and teams know it and teams tend to retain those guys like you just look at the contract structure and how there are rookie guys on rookie contracts are eligible for extensions after year three. It's not just stars who get extended after year three, the vast majority of any player that's shown any proficiency at all towards winning gets extended. They get snapped up. So the sooner or the more frequently that you can find guys who can contribute to winning and who can fit around star talent, the the more you should pick them. And that's what Malachi is. So we've agreed very much so all the way through till now on this podcast, but yeah. I, I will, I will save one Jake LaRavia for the very end. Um, okay. We will talk about Jabari Walker out of, out of Colorado. And mm-hmm. what was really funny was you put out a tweet 
that I saw on social media that you said specifically, there are not 60 guys in this draft class better than Jabari Walker. And Steven and I were literally talking to each other when we read that tweet. And Steven's like, no, but according to my board, there might be 57 or 58. (laughs) 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 And and we, and we got it. We got a good chuckle out of that one, but I, I really thought that having Jabari Walker and Julian Champagny, and not that we're going to talk about Julian, but having both of those guys is kind of like a package duo at the back end of the second. I didn't think that was going to be as popular of an opinion as it's been yet. That's really where I see the majority uh, of people mock or, or list them on their big boards is like this back end of the second round grade. And I want you, Chuck, just as I had you on before to try and sell me on Tari Eason, I want you to sell me on Jabari Walker because I want to have him higher on my board. I'm just, I'm a little confused with how he fits positionally in the NBA. I get this feeling that he might be one of these tweeners in a bad way. And Maybe, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe I'm thinking about that a little too hard. And that's, that's why I'm more down on him than I should be. But why don't you give me your pitch, Chuck, about why you, why Jabari Walker is one of your guys and then more so why you just think he's being undervalued at this point in the process. Okay. Okay. So first to the, for for those who don't know, Jabari Walker is a 19 year old sophomore, another guy who's yep. young for his grade. And he is six, nine, nice long wingspan, probably, you know, seven, one in that neighborhood. Um, and in two years at Colorado, cause he was there as an 18 year old freshman. Uh, he has shot 40% from three, basically 40% on the dot. And he has shot uh, 78% from the line. His game uh, is, you know, where he is, where he pops the most for draft purposes is the catch and shoot threes. He is very good, can be very good. And he really started heating up towards the end of the season for Colorado. Uh, and he rebounds the crap out of the ball. Yes, he does. One of, one of the best rebounders for his age in the country. Really, really, really good. And I think there is a traditional uh, notion in draft circles that you shouldn't count on rebounding to like carry a prospect. And I think that that is fair. You shouldn't count on rebounding to carry a prospect. But what it shows me with regards to Jabari, uh, this goes back to what we were talking about, Usmane, is that he will be very comfortable with the physicality of the game in the NBA, because if he is winning physical battles, which is what rebounding is, particularly in college where everything's cramped and where teams more frequently go for offensive rebounds. If he is winning physical battles over and over as a, as a puppy who came into college as a three-star recruit and was a little raw. And I think that's another reason he's lower on boards is because he didn't have the pedigree, despite being, you know, the son of an NBA, longtime NBA player. Then he is going to win physical battles in the NBA. And I think that the real question on him that a lot of people have is, is he a good enough athlete 
to reliably stick in the league. And to me, I think he is. Now, maybe I'm a little optimistic on that, about his lateral mobility and things like that. But you have to remember, three-star recruit that means that he's not playing in all the major tournaments necessarily, and he came to Colorado, and it's not necessarily a blue-blood program. And I don't know that he has gotten sort of the physical development and work that lots of power power schools give to their prospects where they coming they come into the draft really looking like finished products is it is an optimistic outcome for him and i don't think this should be taken in a negative context i would consider this positive and, and it would help me move jabari up my board is an optimistic outcome for him like a daniel house type outcome i don't think daniel house no i i see where you're going with it but house First of all, I think is more like six, 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 seven kind of range. And I think he is probably a bit more explosive than Jabari. Yep. I see Jabari more as more or less a power forward who can moonlight a little bit at five. I don't think you'd want to like do that too much with him. I think but teams are absolutely going to experiment with him at the five. Cause like a lot of his value can be as a post-up threat and, or like a role man or, and I still think there's more to be unlocked with his game in terms of operating off of the short roll and being a little bit of a playmaker out of the short roll in terms of a passer. Like I, I, I think agree. teams are going to experiment in that way. I agree. I think he is a player that he kind of reminds me of a little bit. Oh, well, I don't know. Maybe not. I, I see him as, an optimistic outcome is that he is a fifth starter on an NBA team. Yes. I'll put it that way without going too deep into the positions, because if we're going to be positionless, then let's be positionless. He does not, I don't think he gets played off the court because he's going to be so hopeless in space. I think that they're, like I said about his body, I think, by the way, like he dunks the ball, <clears throat> pardon me, dunks the ball all the time. It's not as though he, like I said, where he doesn't win physical battles. It's more about how well can he move his hips and shift his hips and keep guys in front of him and stuff like that. I believe that with the right regimen to, to increase his flexibility and open him up, I think he's going to be good enough at doing that. And once you get there, you're going to have a guy who's on the right side of the age curve who can already shoot. And if you look at um, do you, the kid in Denver, Zeke Naji, you know him? Who's yes. like low-key, a really good three-point shooter. And I fought for Zeke at the draft, and he kind of came in a little uh, a, a little bit not as, not as great as I wanted him to be in his rookie year, but now he's started to come on more for Denver. A li- yeah, a little bit. And I think that his problem – is that, you know, Denver's really trying, you know, they're trying to contend as much as they possibly can. And so they are peppering as much like veteran talent who's not going to screw up around Jokic as as possible. But that's a kid who can shoot and who can rebound and who can, you know, slide laterally. And it's not, that doesn't get you all the way there because you do need to be able to put the ball on the floor and attack a closeout. Um, 
but I just think it's on the, it's, I just think it's on the table for him. And I think that Jabari, I don't know, maybe, maybe this is a Zeke Naji kind of thing where it, he's too rigid, <clears throat> too rigid in what he does. That's and, that's really been the argument against Jabari Walker. Is that he's, so? He's make make the argument. Stiff. You make the argument. So stiff how? Stiff how? He's, I like I like punching back. So tell tell me how he's stiff, and I'll see if I can I can push back a little bit. He's too he's too upright. Like I don't I don't think he's coordinated enough with his dribble to do much of anything off the bounce at, at the NBA level. And that I think that that sticks to part of the projection. So like if if the ball let's let's talk about it. so playoffs right. If, if Jabari mm-hmm. Walker gets to a point in his career where he's playing playoff minutes, the ball swung around to him. He mm-hmm. has to be able to either shoot at a high enough level immediately off the catch, or he has to be able to attack a closeout and do something with the ball. And he has to be coordinated enough off the bounce to not just fumble and turn it over. Mm-hmm. I don't have the answer to the second part of that equation. I, I truthfully, honestly don't, which is why I'm not, I don't know if his future is as a guy who you're just telling him to go out to the corner, space the floor for everybody else, is his best opportunity in more limited minutes as like a small ball five who can offer you more versatility as like a roll man or a pick and pop guy. And, and, and that's how he's used on the court. That's where I think it comes in, into play. I don't think it's as big of a deal as some would make it out to be, but those are my concerns related to that. Okay. And those are valid concerns. I totally get it. And if that's the reason, then that's your reason. And it's not, I don't know if it's the best, like, I don't know if it's the best podcast segment. Just be like, well, I disagree, but. No, we can, we can come on. We can agree to disagree. We're, 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 we're gentlemen here. No, no, no. It's not that. It's just that I, I want to be able to, if that's the conclusion, I want to be able to provide more reasoning other than to say like, well, I think he can, I want to be able to put more meat on the ball. <laughs> I, and I, I think that where I, I come down on it is that I don't like to put guys into boxes when they're 19. If Correct. he were a junior and he were 21 and I think Julian is turning 21 this summer, but he's been at St. John's all three years. This was supposed to be his big year where he really addressed his limitations and he kind of came back as the same guy frequently. Although I think he has a, he has a chance in the NBA, but he kind of came back as the same player. Um, Jabari's just still young enough that I, and that I think he's going to be fine. And I think that his passing got better this year. I think he was so raw last year. He really was um, that he's, he's, was clearly by the end of the season, in my opinion, the best player on that team. I mean, they played Arizona in the Pac-12 semifinals in that conference tournament back when Arizona was really rolling and on their way to the number one overall seed in that tournament and hit six threes in the first half against a team with a ton of size. And this all comes back to offense, by the way. Like I, I I I have very little bad to say about Jabari Walker defensively i don't i don't think he's somebody who you want switching out on the guards all the time and being in a very switchable defense but in terms of like positionally he's probably going to be more more of a four three than 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 a three four but like any anything like three through five like in small ball situations like i fully trust him defensively so i, I have very little bad to say about him on that and more of my questions okay. are offensive okay so you do okay so you you trust him defensively you do. 
So let me give you this. This is the comp I was holding back because in, he doesn't. In, in not a hyper switchable scheme. Yes. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Here's the, here's a name that I was thinking about that I, I don't think is the best comp for him, but I think it is an interesting comp to throw out. What would you say about uh, like Maxi Kleber for him? Also not the most skilled guy with the ball in his hands, moonlights between four and five. Uh, frequently plays bigger than he is. Very good rebounder. Maxie's a great shot blocker, but another guy who is not, you know, he's not really a wing, but he can stay in front of wings and he's a good shooter or he usually he can be a very good shooter. So what do you think about someone like that? I do like that comp. And I think that's more of the role that I would want Jabari Walker to play like if I'm if I'm giving him minutes in, in a rotation that's like eight or nine players deep that's the type of role that I would want him to thrive in and so the question is how high do you draft that player and that that's actually a fantastic question to to, <laughs> to ponder over how high do you draft that player Chuck uh I to me I would I have him like early 20s right around 20 you know there there's just a that's where there's a glut to me and look you could make a case for someone ranked 50th for the 20s like you can in this draft that is also know, correct you know that christian brown might be 20 for some people and jabari walker might be 50 like i i get it that's that's fair when you look back to what the draft really produces here you know Jabari at his age and at his size physicality and shooting I that's a bet I'm very comfortable making now the guys who are around him you know I have Kendall Brown and and Marjan Beauchamp in similar like in that same area I can see an argument very easily that both those guys have higher ceilings than Jabari and are probably worthier bets to make and I think that's fine. But again, being a fifth starter on a good team is just a lot more valuable than people give it credit for. It is it is harder to find. You have to, unless someone falls into your lap, like for example, to keep it on the Mavericks where Maxi plays, they signed Reggie Bullock for the mid-level this past year. Um, and Reggie Bullock is like indispensable to their team now. Without Reggie Bullock, they're not up 3-2 on the Jazz. They're not four seed. Like, they, they need him badly. And there aren't just Reggie Bullocks just hanging out at pick 20 in every draft. It's just, it, it's just not how it works. You have, to, you have to understand the value of guys who can make shots and hang on defensively and guard more than one position. And that's another guy who's off the dribble game is, and you know, he's shorter. He's more of a guard than he is a wing or a big wing. He's another guy who off the dribble doesn't do a ton for you, but Jabari is going to be unselfish. He's going to relish defensive matchups. He's going to battle and, and win his share. And if there's another difference between him and Julian Champigny, I would say it is comfort with physicality is one notable difference. That you know, we Jabari, agree on. Jabari, again, they played Arizona three times and he battled with Coloco all throughout all of those games on offense and defense and had a play in that game, that semifinal where he had a fake DHO spun 
beat Coloco, who's lauded for his switchability and drew a foul at the rim on him. Like he, I just think that though he's upright right now, I, I think that is something that can be addressed. There are some guys who have high hips who, you know, who never quite get out of that, but it's usually coupled with a lack of explosion. But if you show real athletic juice in some area, I am at least a believer that the other areas can start to catch up. And that's what I'm hoping with him. I admit that this is more of a stretch and pun intended, but I, I think that he's got something. I really, you're, do. you're helping me. You, you, Erson Demir, who I've had on the podcast, mutual friend, CJ Marchesani, you guys are all helping me move him up my board and ease some of my concerns. But I, I appreciate that you and I can see a similar role slash outcome at his best. Like, I actually haven't talked to many people who want to entertain like the, the, the small ball five type of stuff and see him as more of like a four or five, which it, you might think is surprising. I, I, I don't see how that isn't part of the high end outcome for him. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the, the thing with small ball five is that's another one that is tough in, in draft circles. It's hard. Like, I just think it's hard to be a small ball five. You know, I think you have to be real, you have to be really switchable and you have to, you know, it, it, there's just a, it's a, it's a, I think sometimes it can be used as a, well, if this doesn't work, well, he'll just be able to play small ball five where that's not really the case. Small ball five is usually a luxury, not a last resort for a prospect. So could Jabari do it? I don't know. I mean, he's six eight, two hundred pounds. I would think that he would need to put on some weight. He's gonna add, oh, he's gonna put on weight. That that boy's gonna keep filling out. That that I absolutely <laughs> buy into. He has and and to really that point, frame. mentioning that he wins physical battles. He uh, his seventy eight percent free throw came on one hundred sixty attempts, which is a nice healthy number. He was getting to the line, and it's not as though he was playing exclusively out of the post. He was lined up on the wing a lot. And with that wingspan, it's you, you can get calls if you're physical enough. And if you, if you want it and he wants it. Oh, damn it, Chuck. You're winning me over. You did it. You did it again, man. Con- congratulations. It's to just, you. it's really just a case. It's, these are all bets. They're just, they're, they're bets at this point. I'm not, no, they're, no, they're darts. They're not bad. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Even I'm like a little tentative with these darts. I, this draft man is like, the way I think of it is there are so many bets that I think are worth making that this is a draft of like 25, like 13th overall picks. That's, that's sort of how I see it. And I think that makes it a good and very interesting draft. I don't think it makes it terrible the way that some people think, but maybe I'm wrong. It is not. You're right. It is not a terrible draft. I think it's going to be good just in, in, as I said earlier, in just in different ways than we're expecting. I'll, 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 I'll put it that way. So mm-hmm. our last dart that we're going to talk about is th- this conversation couldn't have been any better time because by the time everyone's listening to this podcast, Corey Tulliba will have already put out a piece on no ceilings. He recently uh, took a trip to Tom's River, New Jersey, and he saw and, and interviewed both Jake LaRavia as well as Kevin McCuller 
in, in a pre-draft workout setting. So he got a very nice up close and personal look at Mr. Laravia. And, and what's interesting about Jake Chuck is uh, there, there's a lot of off ball offense that could be highlighted from a cutting standpoint or a transition standpoint. But I specifically asked Corey, I'm like, what, what kind of drills are, are, is Jake running? Like, what are some of the things that they're really focusing on in workouts for him? And he said a lot of spot up shooting and even more so a lot of movement shooting. And I'm like, if this dude is as legit of a shooter as some of the numbers have indicated in which on, on lower volume um, at Indiana state, his, his first year, he was 40.7%, but only on less than one three-point attempt per game. But last year at Wake Forest, 2.2 three-point attempts per game, 38.4%. And he's been a pretty decent free-throw shooter um, for the majority of his college career. Like, if that's the type of shooter that we can expect to see in the, in the NBA, on top of everything he brings to the table from a connector standpoint, um, offensively from a defensive standpoint, it listed at six, nine, about 228, 230 pounds. Like, yeah, I, 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 I think this guy has to go in the first round and I've kind of had him in like this top 40 range for a while, but I know Steven just moved him into the top 30 of his board. I think Corey's certainly going to be there after seeing him. He said, absolutely. Without a doubt, a first round pick after seeing some of the shooting stuff up close, this is a guy who has gained steam, not like in mainstream circles, but in like more niche, in more niche circles on, on draft Twitter. That, that, <laughs> more, that's more, more darty circles. I like yes. the idea that there's like a mainstream draft Twitter. I know what you mean when you say that, but y'all are like a dominant collective. I think if anyone's the mainstream, y'all are about as close as we've got to it. But that's that's me. Well, I, I, I appreciate that compliment, but the, 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 <laughs> the, the, the point of it is, is that Laravia is picking up steam and he was a guy who I think was not on a lot of people's radars um, for the majority of the college year. Everyone, myself included, was very fascinated with, with uh, Alondis Williams and I still am, but mm-hmm. Laravia is a very, very interesting prospect to talk about. And as I said, if, if the shooting can tie things together, you have you have a very high floor NBA prospect, which are words that I didn't expect to utter about Jake LaRavia about a month and a half ago. But I want you to make more of the case for him, Chuck. Why is he one of your guys? Uh, so I appeared on the draft dummies, or it was the Locked On, pardon me, the Locked On NBA Draft show uh, hosted by Sam Ferris at Draft Dummies. Um, a few months ago, I think probably around January, that, that time frame, And he wanted me to give one underrated and one overrated prospects. My underrated guy was Laravia. And I compared him, I compared the draft perception of him to the draft perception of Harrison Ingram. Harrison Ingram, uh, has a lot of fans had, and has a lot of fans, it he is does not. Clear. He does not have a fan in me. I apologize, Harrison Ingram. He does not have a fan in me. But go ahead. well, so here's <laughs> well, here's the point: is that he is a big wing. He has some ball skills. He has a lot yeah. of good feel for the game. He's young. Um, he's pretty clearly a winning college player. Like he he knows how to play and he knows where to be. He knows where rotations are going to be on both sides of the ball and and how to make you know good passes and he can score out of the yep. post, but athletically a little challenged 
little slow in space. I trust um, nothing that he does from a scoring standpoint outside of three feet from the basket. I well, and that's that. the and and that's the difference. Is I was like, look, Laravia, at the time he was shooting sixty seven percent on twos, and I think he he came down to about sixty one, sixty two to finish the year. And this is on high volume because he was Wake Forest's second highest usage player behind Alondis. So he's shooting 62% on twos. He shot, I believe, 37% on threes or right around there. And he shot over 75% from the line. He just, his touch was uh, incredible all year. And so the theory goes, you know, why is Ingram thought of highly as a first rounder at the time? And why is LaRavia not on draft boards? You know, because they're both, six eight six nine around 230 and that has switched and i think most maybe not most but there's probably an even split about who is preferred as a prospect at this time and i think that laravia is staying in the draft and i don't know that ingram is and that probably tells you what kind of feedback they're getting but his all of his value not all but a a great portion of his value comes from his offensive game and particularly his touch. So North Carolina goes on this run and makes a national title game. And that's a game they probably should have won. There's between the concussion and the floorboard and the puke, just lots of weird things happen in the second half of that game. Um, But they were every bit like right there to win the national title. Yep. And one of the reasons they were in that game is that both in the ACC, uh, not the ACC tournament, both in Coach K's last game and in the final four against Duke, they did a pretty good job containing Paolo Bencaro. And the reason they did a good job, one of the reasons they did a good job containing Paolo Bencaro is that Brady Manick was able to hold up in the post. And that's where Paolo really liked to go to work, was in the post. Um, LaRavia played you know this is i think wake forest is probably best win of the year because they beat unc by like 20 um in january at home and laravia went at manic same guy who stopped palo bencaro and ate him alive scored 31 points on 13 shots 13 for 31 and he just when he gets into the lane when he gets two feet into the paint as draft folks like to say (laughs) if he can shoot over his left shoulder and shoot with his right hand the ball's just going to go in if he gets a clean look at it um and he's comfortable going off the window i think personally his three is just i just think it's good i think it's good now i don't have any real issue about it it was a low volume shot just because he he had never really been asked to fully lean into it and he's so good at cutting that he finds himself in two-point territory a lot. And if you have touch like that, you might as well use it. But the th- I think his three-pointer looks good. I think he can, when he gets hot, it's like a, it's a swish after swish, very smooth kind of three. And I just think it's going to be there for him. The question with him comes on defense. Now, his steal and block rates, I think, are solid and have been solid. But this is... A guy who played one year of high major basketball. He played two years at Indiana State. Again, 
young for his grade. He is a 20 year old junior and is not turning 21 until uh, I think November. So he will be 20 on draft night. The question you have to ask is at six, eight, he is uh, likely going to be a power forward because though his timing's really good, he makes up for um, some slow feet and some slow hips in part from his timing and in reading the game and in positioning himself. He's likely to not be that versatile on defense. Now, maybe again, in a post-up situation or in a one-on-one sort of ball stopping situation, he can hang in. But in terms of being a part of a scramble and recover defense, you know, he can get blown by. So the, the dual questions are number one, can that improve again, going from Indiana state to wake forest? It doesn't mean you're going to be, you have necessarily the strength programs that other D one schools have. So I think it can improve. So that would be my answer to the first question. So that's one is, do you think it can improve? And number two, if it can't, but he's still this really efficient offensive player. How valuable is that guy in the NBA? When I when I first noticed Laravia, which was back in November, I think I sent a tweet out about him, and I comp- I just threw off the cuff. I compared him to Joe Ingles, and Ingles, um, I think it is a better defender. Like obviously, a better yes. defender than Laravia, and had a very good defensive career, very underrated defensive career, and had very quick hips. Um, but his value, the reason he was able to stick in the league was because of his jumper and because he was just an extremely efficient player. Uh, I think if you take Joe Ingles career and you say this, you're going to be a part of a key cog to multiple playoff teams where you can start some and you can rest some, uh, and you are going to be good enough to be sixth man of the year, at least once, like again, in just about any draft, that career outcome puts you in the top 10 or 12 of players in that class. That's usually what it means. There's not 10 or 12 outcomes better than that. I don't know if Laravia is going to get there, <clears throat> but he he has the touch and the shooting to at least keep himself around to see where else his game takes him, to see how much better a defense he can get. And he's the type of guy who's very self-aware he's going to know what he needs to work on because he sees the game so well. Yep. You know, that plays out of how good a passer he is and what a valuable connector he was for that Wake team. They did well when he was on the court. And even with Alondis, kind of, they tended to fall apart with him off the court unless Alondis was really cooking. And those are the type of guys that, again, can play around better talent. My my concern with him is one of the concerns you have with Jabari, which is I don't think his handle is very good. And I think it is susceptible against good defenders and sort of any NBA defender. I think it is susceptible against. And and that's really that's the main part where like the angles comp would fall off, in my opinion. I think they're oh. they're they're very similar in a lot of aspects, but I think that would be the one place where it falls off. Yeah, and I, I think that's fair. And the other part of it is that even if he improves physically a little bit. If he's a four, then yes, maybe he can he can survive on defense against some like weak wings. But the players that are really, really good in the NBA are 
usually they're most weaponized when they're playing power forward. That's Tatum, Doncic, Giannis. I guess Giannis is more five when he's most weaponized. But lots of guys tend to be that because same thing we talked about at the top with last year's draft. You're you're looking for big guys with rear guard, real guard skills. So if that's who you got and that's who Laravia all of a sudden sort of has to guard because he can't really guard other positions, well, then you're in trouble. And then you have to ask yourself the question, how good an offensive player does he have to be to where a team goes, we're going to hide him on a bad offensive player on defense, but he can stay on the floor for us because of how good he is offensively. That's sort of the ratio. I think that a, a popular um, player mold going forward to look for, and I think that one that a couple guys in this draft have an argument as a comp for, is Grant Williams, another extremely efficient offensive player in college. But Grant... I think it's uh, knocked a little bit for his movement skills on defense, which are better than you think. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, I mean, he was a two-time SEC defensive player of the year and, or pardon me, SEC player of the year. And part of that was his defense. And he, you can see him like survive against Kevin Durant on certain possessions. Not everyone, obviously, but, <clears throat> but he's very good. And he uses his strength and he weaponizes it. And he contributes to this defense that's blitzing through the playoffs right now. And that's where if LaRavia were a little better on defense and a little more athletic and a little more disruptive, that's a role I think I could see him in. I think he's that talented on offense with his shooting and his passing. But that's the question is whether he can bridge that gap. So you said you think he can get more athletic. What What is giving you that um, that assurance, that confidence? No, I, th- I thought he could get better in multiple aspects on defense, not necessarily saying more athletic. I didn't, okay. I didn't think that that was what I agreed to, but. <laughs> oh, that's My, like, I'm sorry, man. Yeah, I was, I was rambling anyway, so I apologize, but. No, no yeah, it's that, all that, That's the question is if he, it's, it's the sort of, it's, I don't know if it's high ceiling, low floor, but like if he can, if he can bridge that a little bit and be a little better on rotations, he's smart enough and he's big enough that I think he can turn into a fifth starter and be good. But if he can't, and he just has this offensive juice, yes, he'll stick around, but I don't know how much he contributes to really good teams other than maybe being a rotation guy on like a first round playoff team, which is still really good, but it's not what you're hoping to take a swing on in the draft. You know, I think, I think he's got, I, I trust the Intel on the shooting. I think he's going to have enough shooting. We, we already talked about his off ball value as, as a cutter, as a mover. I think the biggest thing that it comes down to for me with LaRavia is will he be a low mistake player in the right situations? When you ask him to do a little too much, that's when he's had his higher turnover games at Wake Forest and vice versa. Some of the stuff you pointed out on the defensive end, when he is late on some of those rotations, when he is late on closing the gaps, it's when he gets himself a little bit of foul trouble as well. So I think both of those things, I think of it as long as a team knows what they have in him offensively, 
and they don't ask him to do too much. And in turn, I think if he makes improvements on the defensive end to just improve some of that, some of that reaction time to, to get better at seeing things before they happen. And, and to me, with, with a lot of the other things that he value that he brings value to, I think he is a really smart player, which is why I think he's going to improve in some of those aspects. I think the low mistake portion of it on both ends of the floor is really to me what it comes back to because I think he can do enough else offensively on the court and he isn't as negative on the defensive end to where like I can see him getting minutes and and playing a, a valuable role in a playoff series for a team down the line, which is what we wanted to tie all of this back to. Do you agree? Do you agree with me about like the low mistake point? I do, but I think there are different types of high mistake players. And I think LaRavia is the type I would rather not have. One type of high mistake player is you have a lot of physical talent, but you haven't figured out sort of the decision-making part of the game yet. And so you're, you, you're, you're a little too creative. <laughs> oh, maybe, I mean, you could, I guess you could use Alondis Williams as teammate as a, as a comp for this, but like, yes, you just, you haven't figured out what passes to make in what situations you're over aggressive and you need to sort of rein it in and figure out what is efficient, what isn't at one extreme end of the, of the spectrum on this type of player. It's like Anthony Edwards. Yep. Or, or at least Anthony Edwards, the prospect. The other type of high mistake player are guys that have really good processing who, who do know the right decisions, but their physical ability doesn't allow them to make those decisions all of the time. And that's more what I think is the case with Aravia. That That Aravia. is, exactly. So he has to really make up for it in terms of his processing speed and how to read the floor to, to, to better better position himself to not make some of those mistakes, which is with that, that that's hard to do. The mental aspect of the game is harder in, in some respects to harder than I think people think to improve upon because the game just moves so fast at the NBA level. And if he's already making some of those mistakes at the college level, it is a little bit of a jump to ask him to make improvements in a much faster and more athletic league than is the NBA. I would agree with you on that point. Well, and it's like, look at, you know, Go all the way down the spectrum. You're a very smart guy and you study a lot of film. So on an NBA court, you would know what the right decision is to make. A lot of the time the ball came to you, you would know where the percentages is, is in your favor and you would know your teammates skills and you would know who should have the ball next once it comes to you or whether you should shoot. But the physical <laughs> limitations are going to come back on you. They'd come back on yep. you too. And so that's how guys get out of the league. That's how guys don't quite make it is if they just, there isn't a place for them in a game as fast as the NBA. And that's the concern with Laravia. Now he has yep. the size, he has all this shooting and all this skill. Yep. So I think first he's round, a better think, bet to make, but he's not a sure, he's not a sure thing, which I would agree. Yeah. I, I think there's just, there's a real chance that he does not, hit like he that he doesn't and I think that his ceiling is like I said like rotation guy on a playoff team you're still good but I think you just have to I almost feel like I said that the train has sort of passed me by because I don't <laughs> I'm not ready to go nuts on LaRavia and say that he is like a top 20 pick or anything like that top 40 um, top 40 
Yes, I do agree with top four. Okay. I think I've had him there for a while, but I think it's just sort of got to keep in mind, like a guy like Beauchamp, for example, where you said that he's, you've seen. Oh, I freaking love that dude. I freaking love that dude. Like he's a guy who has, he doesn't have the shooting numbers. And I think there's a tendency to be like, well, then he'll never have the shooting numbers, but he finishes really, really well. Yep. And he seems to be comfortable with an elbow pull up. And he absolutely has the physicality to hang on the floor in any circumstance. So that to me is a bet I'd rather make and see if the shot comes along. Cause in the NBA, the deeper you get in the playoffs, you see guys like that who aren't the, the best shooters, but they're so blessed defensively that if they get hot and they make three threes in a game, their team's probably going to win because of all the other things that they can do. And so those, Again, when you're when you're distinguishing between all these different kinds of wings, that is the wing I would rather take a shot on. Oh, you and I are 100% in agreement. I, I, I struggle with where or how high should I put Beauchamp? Like at one point I had him in the lottery and then I kind of yeah. moved him down, but I kind of really want to move him back up in that range because the more I think about it, like the less I don't think that he can't do on an NBA floor like he has he has so many strengths that point to him having value both in the open court and the half court and then you throw in everything he can do defensively at his size with his length and I'm like why why am I not putting this guy higher on my board because I don't believe in his on ball creativity is that really the the only reason why I shouldn't have him higher and like he's he's uh he's a really nice player everywhere else in every other aspect like yeah he's how high do you have him to, to kind of like put a, put a bow on this podcast. How, how, where are you at on Beauchamp? I have him like between 15 and 20. That's where I got him. That's and where I want to have him. I, I need to go back further into G league stuff. Cause it has been a minute since I was watching that stuff very closely um, to make, to really solidify my opinions on those guys. But I, you know, I think I think Dyson yeah. is the best long-term prospect that Ignite had, but in terms of the guy who blew me away the most, especially after seeing him in person, it was it was Beauchamp. I was 100% sold on Beauchamp, especially when I saw him in person. Yeah, it's 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 a hacky thing to say, but you like some guys are just they're ready for it, and they like they just relish being on an NBA floor. They relish the physicality. They relish playing defense. They relish dirty work. Like, and Mar, like we said, Marjan isn't bereft offensively and he's confident. Yep. And all that, all that stuff plays, you know, I, and I don't know what sort of defender he projects as right away, but he's going to give someone problems on defense pretty early and wings who can do that teams find homes for them. So he's a, he's, he's a playmaker. He knows exactly when to double and when to trap. And he's got really quick hands to where he can poke the ball out. And if you get him out in transition, I, it, I know you love, you love Tari's. And, and in this respect, I give Tari credit. I think he's the best transition forward in this draft class. I don't consider him a wing. I consider Beauchamp a wing and I would consider Beauchamp the best transition wing in this class. I don't know where you fall on that quote unquote yeah. positional line, but. I think that's right. And I actually have lowered a, a, just a skosh on Tari. Just no, you had No, you didn't. No, not, not as a, I still have him as a lotto pick. Don't get me again. Okay. Get twisted. I'm just, I had been thinking of him as in like the seven, eight range 
and I am a little lower than that, but we'll see. We'll see. There's lots of figuring out what guys really fit next to star talent is tough, man. It's not, not an easy thing to do. That's why Malachi is like, I'll just make all my shots. You're like, well, I'll take that guy. I I would also, I would also take that guy. You'd be happy to know I've had, I've had Tari at 16 on my board for quite a while. So yeah, maybe it's a very good spot for him. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Chuck, we have accomplished everything that we set out to do on this podcast. This was incredible content as always. I certainly learned a lot and I couldn't thank you more for, for coming on and sharing some of your knowledge. I know the audience will certainly appreciate this podcast as well. In case, for whatever reason, after having you on for the upteenth time that they don't follow you already, please enlighten my audience where they can find you, your podcast, everything that you're doing. Thank you very much. I am the Chucking Darts NBA and Draft Podcast. That is wherever podcasts are. I am at Chucking Darts on Twitter. And like that's basically it. I think I technically have a YouTube channel. And I put like one <laughs> segment of one episode on. But it's tough, man. So the grind is hard. You, you are one of the best grinders in the space. And I give you infinite credit because it is, it is tough. Um, but yeah, just follow me on Twitter. Nate is good enough to have me on and to retweet some of my episodes. So if you follow him, you'll eventually find me. But that's me at Chucking Darts. I have, I have told Chuck in, in private that he is doing the Lord's work with his NBA coverage and his <laughs> NBA playoff coverage this year. And I, I sincerely mean that um, your episodes with, with Samson as well as Lauren were two of my favorite podcast episodes that I've listened to over the last about month and a half. I want to say that, right. That you did the Samson boat podcast. Well, like three to four weeks ago, if I'm yeah, correct. A couple of weeks. Lauren it was right was before the, recent. right before the playoffs started. Cause yep. it was, I think it was in that week that was like play in week. And then Lawrence was last week. So yeah, two weeks ago and a week ago. I'm not going to have an episode this week just because I don't have the time, but maybe Sunday night I'll have something and have it up Monday morning. I usually I, try to do at least one a week. I would love to cover the playoffs more, but I, I have not watched enough NBA regular season basketball this year to feel like I can do playoff coverage justice because I have not been following all the trends. I mean, obviously I, I pay close enough attention to the league, but I don't feel like I've, I've watched enough to really cover the playoffs and in, in the, the type of detail that I did last year, but really the type of depth um, that the playoffs deserve. So that's why I'm, I'm glad Chuck that you've done everything in that space that you have this year. And I've really appreciated your content. I know a lot of other people have appreciated your content out there. So um, keep, Thanks, man. keep doing the Lord's work. And, and meanwhile, I will, I will try to do what I can in the draft space. Hopefully next year I'll be able to cover more NBA stuff. Cause I, I, I really do miss watching as, as, as much as I have in, in the past, but this draft cycle has just taken it's taken everything out of me. This is one of my harder cycles that I've um, had to evaluate. I've been trying my hand at this. I think we're on like the 11th season now that I've really been trying my hand at draft work. And this is, this has been one of the tougher classes to, to evaluate. So a it's, lot of my time has been taken up. It's easily the toughest one that I've evaluated. <laughs> I think it's so, I think it's so hard. I think it's so hard. And I think that's interesting. That makes it fun because you have disagreements starting right at number one and going yep. all the way down. But there are, I mean, I can just do the the bit. And in addition to the guys we talked about, you know, Tari Eason, Jeremy Sohan, Josh Minot, yep. Julian Champigny, Kendall Brown, 
Marjan Beauchamp, you know, these are, these are wings. These are like real wings and the opinions on them just vary so wildly. Uh, It's very hard to parse, but that's why you got to clutch on to stuff. That's true. Guys who can shoot very good, you know, guys who can defend good players, very good. And just go from there. Well, certainly thank you so much everyone out there for listening to this podcast. Make sure you're following me on Twitter at draft deeper. Make sure you're subscribed to the Draft Deeper podcast wherever you get your podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and make sure you are subscribed to No Ceilings, NoCeilingsNBA.com, following us on Twitter at NoCeilingsNBA, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, No Ceilings TV. We have plenty more content in store. But until then, I thank you all for listening. I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week. Mm-hmm.